the sterile city. It's unproductive. Um, Shylock's money breeds. He's more concerned about breeding money. That's a factor of the secular city. The usurious, the wasteland city, that's Elliot's word. Baudelaire called the city the Formilante city. F-O-U-R-M-I-L-L-A-N-T. Formilante city. The city of the swarm, the swarming city. We know that one of the qualities of the modern cities is anonymity. People pass each other all the time and never make eye contact. That really bothers me. And it's, just, it's a sad fact that you, know, you can walk right by somebody and they don't even know that you're there. We, we fall into objects. The swarming city. We see in Shakespeare's Venice that it, the Venice shares a number of those qualities, that there's something impersonal. People aren't friendships. They're too busy making money. Um, friendships are fading. The families are breaking apart. Gogo doesn't know his son, Lancelot, and Jessica runs away. The authority of the father is gone. The father has no authority in that city. And where it is, it's misused in Shanghai. We could say that the modern city is a city of means without ends. I want to repeat that. It's the city of means without ends. Because final ends are gone, right? There's no God. So the nature of the, the modern city is to keep producing things to keep people buying. We can call it the consumer's city. This is so important. We continue to manufacture things to, to constantly satisfy desires. Because desires in the modern city are endless. The nature of the soul is endless. Augustine, when my soul is restless until I rest in thee. So the nature of the city is to, is, is to be consumerist, is to continue to manufacture things to keep answering desires people want. So you can see the nature of the city is a proliferation of means without ends. But a city that keeps artificially producing things to have people consume them is a city inimical to love. Because love is an end in itself. Well, think about that. If this, the modern city is, um, is, is, is known by its proliferation of means and it keeps producing things, it, it's endless. There is no end. But, but love by nature is an end. We rest in it. Um, so there's a quality to the modern city that's actually inimical to love. We saw it in, in uh, Merchant Venice. We're going to see it in spades in Othello. Because Othello's going to deal with a love relationship that is destroyed uh, by something in the city. Um, we saw that one of the basic tensions in the city of Shakespeare's representatives between these two laws, Old Testament and New, Shylock and, and the Christians are um, antagonistic, um, fundamentally at odds with each other. And those differences bring um, both of them into collision in a courtroom. And we've talked about it. If, if the terms of the conflict are left as they are, Antonio's dead. If the law is enforced, he dies. If, if, the, if the Christians let him off and mercy um, does away with the law, the city's dead because nobody has entered into a contract. So if either of those extremes has its way, the Venetian city, the modern commercial city goes. It's destroyed. So one of the questions that, that I was asking last week is what does Portia do to reconcile those extremes? And we talked about it. That she, and it's a woman, and it's not somebody from Venice. Because I think what Shakespeare's showing is that if you grow up in Venice, you've got this mind to, to rationalize things, to keep doing things. But you, you don't have a sense of final ends. Portia's the one who does. She's the one who can hold the bond because she knows if she doesn't, Venice is destroyed. We went through that. She's the only one who can hold to the bond but realize the end that was implicit in the bond that nobody else could get to. That end was the good of the human person. The law is not this. By the way, this is Plato and St. Augustine. For Augustine was a Platonist. The law for Plato was punitive. It's meant to punish us. The law for Aristotle and St. Thomas was good. The end of a law is the good of the human person. Of course, it's the only one who can do that. And we know she's read Aristotle because her opening words 
me. You know how to achieve a little me. So, um, um, Portia is the one who resolves that conflict. And one of the last scenes, one of the last questions I ask you is, how do we understand Portia? Remember when she arrives back at Venice, when she arrives just at that moment, Lorenzo and Jessica are contemplating the music of the spheres, and um, Lorenzo says, hark the music, shams. That's not an accident. <laughs> the best way to put this is the stage is speaking. A stage gesture. If you know anything about Shakespeare, you know physical gestures, stage gestures, entrances, and exits mean things. So, so we ended with these questions. Why a woman? Where's Belmont? Why are we so important? I'm going to go back to the end because we never looked at that final scene. I want to take a few minutes with it tonight. Why are rings so important? The women rightfully beat their husbands over the head on this question of rings. Why? And finally, is there is Christ in play? The whole point of this work that we're doing together is to see if we can find Christ at work in our world. So let me go back to the play with those questions. Okay. Why a woman? Where is Belmont? Where is this Belmont beautiful mountain? Where is it? Bassanian has to cross the sea, remember. And Portia has to cross the sea to get to Venice. We talked a little bit about the sea. Where is Belmont? How do we understand this place? Everybody returns there. It's so clear that they return because there's something, what's the word, acidic, toxic. There's something, there are dangerous influences in Venice. So to find the peace that they long for, they return to Venice. Where is that place? What's the importance of rings? And is there a Christ? Can we find Christ in the story? Okay. Let's go back to the play. I want to read some lines. Uh, and pick up the end, and then we'll start it up. <laughs> I hope I don't need those, but... Turn to uh, Act 4, about uh, 275 or so. Act 4, scene 1, around line 275 to 280. I want to pick up here because it, um, it, it's, um, it's, it, it reinforces the, the point I want to come to here in a second. Um, Antonio has just resigned his life. He's made it clear that he's He's glad to give up his life for a friend. And Bassanio says, Antonio, I'm married to a wife which is as dear to me as life itself, but life itself, my wife, and all the world are not with me, esteemed above thy life. I would lose all, I sacrifice them all, here to this devil to deliver you. Portia, he doesn't know that <laughs> the lawyer is his wife. They were married before she left. Your wife would give you a little thanks for that if she would buy to hear you make the offer. Graziano, I have a wife who I protest I love. I wish she were in heaven, so she could entreat some power to change this cursed Jew. She's well you offer behind her back. I wish she would make else an unquiet house. Shylock. You know, whatever we think about the contest here, Shylock is really penetrating because several times he makes criticism of these Christians that are just. And he's making one right now. These be these Christian husbands. I have a daughter who would even the stock of Barabbas had been her husband rather than a Christian. We trifle time. Get on. So both both husbands, this is really funny. Both husbands are acting very noble. Yeah. I'll do this great thing for you, Antonio. Um, I'm married to a wife which is dearer to me as life itself, but life itself, my wife and all the world are not with me as he. What wife is going to be flattered by saying, one guy saying about his friend, I love you more than my wife, <laughs> or I see you more? Okay, you know what happens. We went through this. Portia um, works a contract finally to hold the bond 
and get this, um, Antonio off. And then because um, Shylock has tried to kill Antonio, he really wanted his life, because you know that he was offered money to get him off. So if he's really not interested in the law, he wants vengeance. That's what he wants. And he's willing to kill a man. And she made, she's so good. She makes the point that since you were willing to kill a man, now your life is um, owed. And Antonio shows mercy, takes the money, and, and on the condition that Shylock converted. They leave the courtroom, and as they do, they run into the men, and um, the men offer to give something in gratitude for what she's done. They both say no, and Nurse and Portia. The men insist, and finally Portia says, then we'll take the rings. And the men give them up, both of them. Now turn to the end. We already looked at that scene where Lorenzo and Jessica are talking about Act 5, Scene 1. The motions of the spirit of Dola's night and his affections dark as scarabus. Let no man be trusted. Mark the music. Portia enters. Mark the music. Just hold on to that, okay? Now, they're all returned. There's a piece, <laughs> there's apparently, there's a piece and an accord. Everything looks romantic and sweet. And suddenly, Portia hears that Graziano and Larissa um, are quarreling about line 144. A quarrel. Oh, sorry. Are you in Act 5 now? Yeah. Did I say Act 5, Scene 1? Act 5, Scene 1, about line 150 or so. Portia says, a quarrel. So already? <laughs> this is so funny. How many days after our marriage do we you know, have our first fight? About a hoop of gold, a paltry ring that she did give me, whose posy was for all the world like Cutler's poetry upon a knife. Love me and leave me not. There is what talk you the post. She goes on. The two women put coals on the men's head. Finally, um, Bassiano has the courage to say what happened, and both women accuse the men of giving the rings to women. And the men insist that they didn't, but they gave it to the two men. Now go to about line 190 or so. Even so void is your false heart of truth, by heaven I will never come into your bed until I see this ring, nor I am yours until I again see mine. Now listen, you have to hear this aloud because if you don't, you'll miss it. Sweet Portia, if you didn't know to whom I gave the ring, if you didn't know for whom I gave the ring, and would conceive for what I gave the ring, and how unwillingly I left the ring, when not would be accepted but the ring, you would abate the strength of your displeasure. There's not a, a line that doesn't end with a ring. So Shakespeare's and the women and the men are hitting this over the head. Portia, She's not going to be put off by what her husband says right now. I hope everybody's getting that. <laughs> if you had known, so she's answering line by line. If you had known the virtue of the ring, or half her worthiness that gave the ring, <laughs> I hope you don't hear this again. Just, she's answering line by line. She's so good. Or you were honored to contain the ring. You would not then have parted with the ring. What man is there so much unreasonable that you have pleased to have defended it with any terms of zeal, wanted the modesty to urge the thing held as a ceremony? Should have given your life for it. You should have defended it. Nurse, it teaches me what to believe. I'll die for what some woman had the ring. He, he declares that he swears that he didn't give it to. Um, Portia says on um, about line 230, um, I will become as liberal as you. I'll not die him. So, she will go to bed with this guy. I will not deny him anything I have. No, not my body nor my husband's bed. Know him I shall. She wants to know who this man is. She will sleep with him if she has to give the ring bed. Well, that, I mean, the cheek is piling salt and wounds. Finally, the two women um, admit what they did and uh, end the play ends with the news that Antonio's ships have won in return. And it ends in wonder, like most comedies. There's something miraculous taking place because the news was that you remember Antonio's ships had all gone astray. And I would, so there's this wonderful sense of um, uh, plenitude, of blessings that are beyond anybody's expectations. So Shakespeare's showing us that, that 
some great glory, unexpected, um, some blessing is upon everybody. And, and the, the, the play-ins with the women saying they're going to go off and explain what had happened. And, but I've got a couple of questions here because they're really, really important. So let's go back to my questions and take a few minutes before we take a look at the family. Where's Belmont? How are we to understand this place? Because clearly it's, remember, if you, sorry about my writing, it's just the, it, hard to go to the board. It's the garden. Wait, cool. if, think of Venice and Belmont. And you know that Venice is a world surround. There's no God. It's a world surround. It's it's a, it's a setting in a contingent world. It's a contingent world. So it's governed by chance. People have to risk themselves based on how well they think they can overcome chance. That's what businessmen do, right? They they try to minimize the risks against themselves in the hopes that they'll profit. So when you think of Venice as a city, it's important to see that what it's set in a world of chance. There's no God. They have to risk and they have to, they have to risk and hold themselves to their words, just as in marriage. The bond has to be taken seriously. Belmont is a world surrounded by music. It's the music of the spheres. There's a God, there's an order of beauty to everything. So um, and it Portia brings what she does to this courtroom scene from Belmont. And that's where they return. So my question is. <laughs> How are we to understand that one Well, as you're like your allegory before, that it's the return to the garden. The garden. Yes. Yeah. It's Belmont. Yeah. Anybody else? Do you have something? Matthew, do you have something? Heaven on earth, I don't know, like, a, no. <laughs> the trouble that I have with that, and if you were dealing with secular scholars, they would, there has to be textual evidence, you know, there's, there's almost no allusions explicitly to Christ or Matthew or the mountain. In, in my own heart of hearts, I believe they're buried there, but to claim that on the basis of the text, is a stretch. And one of the reasons I'm reluctant to do that because when we do that, we open ourselves to secular critics who are going to say, um, they're going to end up disbelieving us because we can't prove it. And I don't think that's an open we should give. So if we're, is everybody following that? We can't give that ground away by making claims we can't support. Because if we do, then we take away everything good. And I'm, I'm, I can't tell you how reluctant I am to go there. Let me just offer something in terms of the play that, because you know we're we're in a world of speculation. Shakespeare doesn't. We've got we know the atmosphere, we know the goodness, the virtue, the philosophy. I'm going to say that it's a place of the imagination. It's a place of poetry. It's that world that poetry takes us into in the play. The goodness of Portia. I want to get to this when we get to uh, why a woman, but. Um, I think it's a place of the imagination. It's where this goodness, where we experience it in poetry and hopefully take it into the world. Because we're following Portia, we're learning anything here, I hope. We're learning what we should do with the law because we know, we know, if things are left the way they were when people went to court, the law, mercy, if we don't reconcile those two things, we're in trouble. I can't say that strongly enough. If we apply, if, if at home, in our families, we all know this, and I, I, one of the seven, I'm so dedicated to education that teachers, I'm giving you guys a quiz next week. 
If we don't do this, we're, 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 we're leaving our faith without the support that you have. Leave those two things on their own. What's wrong with justice by itself? The play makes that clear. Too harsh. As a matter of fact, it gets inhuman. Leave justice by itself, and we're going to beat people up. We're always going to be self-righteous. I'm right. You're wrong. Punishment. Right? It's not that punishment isn't deserved. It is. Something's wrong. We have to act. What's wrong with mercy by itself? Sorry? Lawlessness, exactly. St. Thomas said, mercy, this is St. Thomas, mercy without justice is the mother of disasters. Mercy without justice is, in our in contemporary language, enabling. It's the mother of alcoholism, drugs. Take away the protections of the law and kids get away with anything. Is everybody following me? Take either one of those things by itself, push to either extreme, and what we've got in place is exactly what we know in our own lives. The whole call of Christianity is to bring those two things together. I don't see it happening without a cross, without a, a real ordeal. That's the core of the Shakespeare's showing us how important it is to bring those two together. Portia's the exemplar. Where does she come from? Come on. Poetry is showing us. Hey, Chasers answering Plato's criticism. Only the, only the poets who show us the universal truths will be allowed in that city. Is he doing it? I would say so. Is everybody following? I can't make that claim as a certainty in the city of the imagination, but um, I believe it has all these other mountains behind it, but in terms of the story, that's as far as I would go with it. Um, why the rings? This is so important. Why the rings? Why are the women beating up these men over? Who cares? Rings? I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> why, why, why are rings so important? I don't know. It's a sign. Sorry? A sign of fidelity. Yeah. It is a covenant. Suzanne and I were talking about this earlier too. I mean, her comment was the, the permanence, the circle, the eternity, a sign, fidelity. I'm going I'm to push this a little bit farther. Yes, 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 all that. Why is it important to wear them? Suzanne taught me that. I mean, she didn't do it deliberately, but I, when we were first married, she, she, she was so aware of women wearing rings. I, that was not on my mind. But, so, I just became aware that she saw that. And I, I sometimes wonder if women are more aware of that than men. I, I'm not sure. Um, but why is, it, why is it important that they be worn? Because I hope everybody's with me here for a second. Take the rings away and hide them. Put them in a pocket. Would everything be okay? Why do we wear them? What's your name? Cheryl. Sorry. Cheryl. 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 I said take a pledge. It's a promise. It's a covenant. I know, but I'm asking why. We could put them in our pocket. I'm asking why. Why is it important that we put them on our fingers? Sorry, go ahead. It's a uh, reminder to us. Uh, like when I take, or when I was giving my ring, Teresa said, take this ring as a sign of my fidelity and my fidelity. Right, good for you. It's her ring that I'm wearing because it reminds me of her fidelity and her promise. Her Anybody else? I, I want to push this. I, go ahead. What's your name? Sorry. Ginger. Say Ginger? Ginger. Yeah, Ginger. Go ahead. It's also a symbol to the world. Why is that important?
Go ahead. Did you have something? What's your name? Me. No, next to you. Did, yes.
So why are these men so light? Or maybe, let me put it differently. What, how do we look at women in the play, and, and why a woman? Why is it a woman that comes into the courtroom to save Antonio and not men?
Antonio? Yeah. yeah. Reason. 
There's nobody on this planet who's as capable of using her reason as she is. Because she's not Aristotle, she's got the classics behind her. She, the only reason she can make that argument in court is because she's so well educated. Yeah? And she's a woman of extraordinary faith for her to have been obedient as she was to her father. So to me, she's one of Shakespeare's most extraordinary figures. And the resemblance of Christ is not obvious on the surface, but if you think about what she's doing, I mean, she's, seems to me she's closer to Christ and even closer than Antonia, only in the sense that she's got a wisdom that he doesn't have. Let me stop there. Any, any comments or reflections or thoughts about the play or questions before we turn to Othello? Did you enjoy the play? I hope you did. I, yes. I, I hope, remember, remember what, I mean, why I just hope you take this all seriously. My reason for starting here instead of going back to the ancients is that we're starting here at home. This is us. This is who we are. Uh, this is our regime. This is what it does to us. This is the problems we've got to deal with. Um, he's showing us a way. So, um, it, in some ways, it really does reflect us. I hope, I hope you won't take that to heart because something's being offered to us here to help us. Just make an administrative note that might help some people here. You, you probably already know about this, but there are some excellent versions of these plays that are word for word. You know, so often you'll go to the Shakespeare from the park or something, they just totally wrote it, yeah. made it modern and so forth. But the BBC's done a really good job yeah. of producing a series of these Shakespeare plays that are word to word, exactly as they are written, with very simple staging too, yep. uh, which really, I think, enhances it. So, I do too. Found it on Amazon Prime, actually, so you can probably watch these plays and yeah. make a huge difference. Is Chuck? Yes. Chuck, yeah. What he just said is, remember, I, you know from I said this about the lyrics, poetry is meant to be read because it, we give it a body. If it's in our thoughts, it gets too angelic, we miss it. And remember, I, I just, just reinforcing adding to what Chuck has said, Shakespeare wrote drama. His plays were meant to be acted. And you know, if you see a play, I mean, I'm so glad he said that. If you watch a play, everything speaks. The gestures, the way they interact. So you're not just left with words on a page. You're watching people engage their actions, their gestures, their inflections. Everything has a body. It, it gives a more complete knowledge. The problem is that when you read it, you don't think about it very much. You know, I'm so I'm glad to do this, but every play is meant to be um, experienced in a body, on a stage. And the BBC productions are, are, are genuinely good. And by the way, if you want to watch a great play, I think it's Shakespeare's greatest play, watch the BBC production of Winter's Town. It's just extraordinary. Harvard, there's a Harvard professor who also has been uh, he's on YouTube, uh, giving an expo on all Google Othello Lecture 1. Be careful of scholars. That's all I can say. You know, you had a question. Go ahead. Um, going back to the motions of Venice, I saw the movie with uh, Robert De Niro, and at the end, you know, you saw the Skylark very disappointed when he heard that his daughter sold the ring. Right. In the movie, it shows her at the end with the ring putting the ring back on so that it showed it really wasn't true. She didn't sell it. She yeah. still had it. So it had a softer ending than the book. Yeah, I mean, you just have to be careful. I mean, what Chuck said is when he made the point line for line, people play around with Shakespeare and turn it into things often. So one of the reasons I try to go through the book so you, you know, to be faithful to the book um, because people can do all sorts of things with it. Um, you don't want to, there's such a wisdom to Shakespeare. You want, to, you want to learn to see what's there, not change it. It's too valuable. Um, yeah. You have a question back here. Sue, say, somebody had a... Oh, you should take the mic. You sure? Okay. <laughs> um, quickly. A fellow. Just a couple of things that I, I want to keep building on what we're doing, so I'm going to go back to things that we've talked about um, and add to them. 
Remember that the city came into existence with Enoch, um, its nature. Remember what Aristotle said, that the polis is the mean between two extremes, the tribe and the empire. And in neither of those extremes does the individual fulfill himself. The polis is that, um, that entity, and it doesn't quite correspond to the modern city. The polis means something a little different. But the polis is that enti entity in which, because of this division of labor that takes place, people can begin to come together to use their freedoms to help each other learn. And so it's more possible to oppose for each individual to fulfill his potential than it would be, say, an empire or a tribe. Okay? So we've got these various notions of the city. Um, for Aristotle, the, the end of the city is a good, the good of man, the good of each individual. Um, St. Augustine talks about the city um, and, and his, his line going back to the classics really goes back to Plato. In the city of God, he talks about there being two cities, the city of man and the city of God. And uh, between those two cities, the city of man really points towards hell. Man is, acts to fulfill his own desires and his own ego. The city of God is man's ultimate place if man will give himself to the work that God calls him to. But between those two cities, the city of man and the city of God, is another city which he calls the peregrine, peregrine, or pilgrim city. It's the church. It's man on his way to God. And in that city, in that community, remember it's a pilgrim, it's, it's on the way. It's not established like God's city or hell. It's a peregrine. It's a wanderer. Man's in exile. His ultimate home is not here, even though Enoch and the secular mind wants to make the sea its final home. It's not. The final home for man is gone. It's his final resting place. It's the New Jerusalem. The peregrine city, the wandering city, the pilgrim city is on its way. It's in transition. That's the church. It's the community in which the sacraments are given to help man attain a final end that he can on his own. So just keep add that now to your thoughts about the city, because we were looking at Venice, the modern city, we were looking at Belmont. Um, so St. Augustine gives us this notion, he helps fill out our understanding of the earthly city by giving us these two images, the city of man, the city of God, and in between this pilgrim city. Man's on his way. He's in exile. And, and remember the, the interesting paragraph, the really interesting paradox about this. When Christ came here, he said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He makes it clear that he's in exile because where's Christ's home? So everything Christ does here is in exile for us. You know? He left us when we come here. No. We're in exile. If we ever get to a point, I mean, this is the, the temptation of the modern city, if we ever get to a point where we think, I've got all the blocks laid out, we've got our home, we're all set, this is heaven on earth. If we ever reach a point where we think, this is heaven. By the way, by the way I think modern suburbia is our effort to recover the garden. It's to have heaven near heaven. Everything the way we want it. Yeah? If we ever reach that condition, we're in trouble. Because this is not our final home, according to Augustine. Our final home is with God. We should be moving. If we ever reach a point where we think we're settled and are finally happy, be careful that there are dangers there. So Shakespeare's aware of that. It, it's interesting to me that nobody settles at Venice. They go back to Belmont, but Belmont is this strange, I'm gonna call it a place of poetry, imagination, whatever we do with it, but, but it's not the earthly city, okay? Um, the word, remember what I said earlier, the modern secular city in the form in which we know it, what we would call the secular city, the commercial city, the transactional city, we really like Helen's word, the commercial city. Um, it, 
the basis of it is resourcefulness. We talked about that. It's a new kind of city out of in uh, in out of Italy that when Aristotle and Plato were recovering the Renaissance. Um, the word capitalism comes from the Latin caput, capital, which means head. So the commercial city by its very nature draws on the head, the intellect. Okay, and I don't underscore that because that probably is not going to mean much, but watch Iago work in this play because we're watching the, the most evil man in all of Shakespeare's plays. And I said it before, he's in Venice. There's something, there's something about Venice that increases the power of evil to do its work. I can't say it. See how dark I am? I can't say it more strongly. Iago doesn't appear in any other play. He appears here. Shakespeare's given two plays of Venice, Merchant of Venice and Othello. Capitalism comes from the Latin caput, head. So the very nature of the commercial regime is to use our minds to be resourceful. Yeah? Not put our, all our eggs in the basket to be intelligent, prudent about our, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Our risking our ventures, okay? So, the very nature of capitalism encourages, take this serious, resourcefulness, ingenuity, risking. Yeah? That's the nature of the commercial regime. It's cultivated, I really, Ellen's, you know, kind of, it cultivates this transactional mindset. It cultivates, the men in commercial business are the riskers. They're out risking. The women are the teachers. They're teaching these men something they're not going to get from their risking, from this economic world. So the modern commercial regime, capitalism, caput from head, um, means using the intellect to be resourceful. And I would identify three qualities that are peculiar to that that help people advance. Resourcefulness, ingenuity, risking. Now I don't want an answer from you, but this is a question for next week. What are the opposite of those characteristics? Just keep that in mind, okay? Final thing before we look at Othello. In Dante's Commedia, which is set in Florence, that's the commercial regime, that Venice and Florence are belong to that same period. Dante said that the most dominant characteristics of the commercial regime are pride and envy. Pride and envy. What is pride? Pride means wanting to, to be better than somebody else, to stand over somebody else, to be better than somebody else, you know? How much are people motivated by getting ahead of somebody else? Envy means, um, sorry? Envy, you're actually upset Right. Yeah, envy means wanting something that you don't have and taking a pleasure when they lose it. If you're a sister and your older sister gets a dress and she spills something on you and you feel a blow in your heart, you're glad because you didn't get the dress that she did. Or if somebody got a job um, and something happens, they crash their car, and he means there's that secret smile inside that I didn't get that, I'm glad they lost it. Um, in Dante, Dante makes clear that everyone of the sins, I won't go into this now, but the seven capital sins are answered by Mary. I just want to take a second of that, by answered by Mary. What's the virtue opposite pride? Humility. Humility. Who is most perfect in humility in human terms? Mary. What's the virtue opposite um, envy? Hmm? Well, listen, virtue, I mean, the virtue of it all of them, really, but specifically envy. It, it's generosity. And it's interesting that every one of the Beatitudes lines up with the sins. Blessed are the, the meek or the humble, you know. Um, and blessed are the merciful. The merciful are those. Envy means being 
something you don't get or happy when they lose it. What's merciful? Being sad when somebody loses it and glad when they get it. Giving something. So for Dante and Shakespeare, every one of the sins has a corresponding virtue and a beatitude. Now, the reason I'm pressing this so much is because it's going to go to the heart of this, because remember, Shakespeare's aware that this is the, the, the prototype of the capitalist regime, the commercial regime. And it's going, to be, it's going to be even more important here than it was for Portia. Now, when you, when you go through Othello, remember that in Merchant, Shakespeare had two settings, Venice and Belmont. And Belmont was crucial because it helped throw a light on Venice and helped us to see things that we wouldn't have seen without it. Shakespeare works in contrast all the time. The same things would be true of Othello, except the, con the contrast of Venice now will be Cyprus. When we get to Cyprus, the whole world is going to unfold. So in Othello, um, Venice is defined as the place of law and order. And Cyprus is a place where primitive, the opposite of law, violence, betrayals. I, I don't want to go into because I want, but just remember that in, in those two, what Shakespeare's doing with the setting is helping us to see oh, oh, the, the Venetian world and another world, another world, okay? Now turn to Othello. I'd just like to read some of the opening passages and then stop for tonight. But the question, the question that I want to leave everybody with so I don't rush at the end is, um, what is it about Venice that makes it so open to evil? Because Iago's the worst character in, in Shakespeare's whole canon. What is it about Venice that makes such an opening for evil? Um, and what is it about Venice that, that seems um, so dangerous, so fatal to love? Because if you know anything about Othello, I don't want to, I don't want to I hate giving things away, but things are not going to go well for Othello and Desdemona. Let me put it that way. So what's going on with this regime? What Shakespeare's showing us about this regime, okay? Can you turn to the fellow? Let me just go over the opening with you. It begins, remember I, I said this before, the opening scene, particularly the opening lines in every Shakespeare play, contains the whole of the play. It's like, a little, it's like the word before it exfoliates. Fills out. Rodrigo, Tushnare, tell me, I take it much unkindly that thou, Iago, who hast had my purse as if the strings were thine, should know us of this. Iago, God's blood, but you'll not hear me. If ever I did dream of such a matter, abhor me, Rodrigo, but toldest me that thou didst hold him in my hate. Despise me if I do not. Three great men of the city in person suit to make me his lieutenant off cap to him. Iago's upset because he, he expected a promotion as um, Othello's second lieutenant, but another man, Cassio, gets it instead. So in the opening, we're getting a glimpse of Iago who's really upset because he didn't get what he wanted. And somebody else did. Okay? But look at those opening lines. Rodrigo, touch never tell me. I take it much unkindly that thou, Iago, who has had my purse as if the strings were thine, should know us of this. What, what do we know just from those opening lines? Sorry? We don't quite know yet. I mean, if, if we just go on the base of this line, we don't know. But what we do know is the measure of worth or loyalty in this regime is 
money. It's once again that important. So the indication of one's trust in another is given in money, that he let him hold his person. So immediately we know we're back in this financial world and that money determines the worth of something, a word, action, whatever it is. He goes on to um, complain that, that all of these other men um, on about line 48, you shall mark many a dubious and neat crook made that doting on his own obsequious bondage wears out his time, much like his master's ass. For not but profitable, and when he's old, cashiered with me such honest knaves, others there are who trim in forms and visages of duty, keep yet their hearts attending on themselves. So there are all these people running around in Venice who put on this show of serving other people. Remember, it's a, it's a world of exchange. When as a matter of fact, what they're doing is for themselves. They're all trying to get ahead. So what motivates these people is self-interest. That's the driving force here. These fellows have some soul, and Iago admires these people. These fellows have some soul, and such a one do I profess myself. For sir, it is as sure as you are Rodrigo, or I the more, I would not be Iago. In following him, I follow but myself. What drives him is self-interest. That's what makes him who he is. But listen, follow, listen to these words. I follow but myself. Heaven is my judge. Not I for love and duty, but seeming so for my peculiar end. For when my outward action doth demonstrate the native act and figure of my heart, in compliment stern, tis not long after, but I will wear my heart upon my sleeve. For doubts the pecca. He's single. He, he has no shame about saying, I don't have the feelings. If I did, I, I put them out there and the birds could peck at me. Everything he does is for himself. And notice this line, for dogs to peck on, I am not what I am. Does that phrase resonate? Does, what, what? Yes. Quote. It's the opposite of I am. Yeah. Did everybody hear that? See it, remember? Yeah. Remember when God named himself, he said, I am that am. Iago, this, you know Shakespeare's massive language. Not, Iago says, I am not what I am. So we're already getting clues about something about this commercial regime, the scene, the pretenses that people love. Now, Iago tells Rodrigo to go wake up um, Desdemona's father because Desdemona is alone. Jessica eloped, Desdemona eloped. The father's not around. His authority is gone in both plays. The daughter's eloped, okay? Um, and, and watch what Brabantio says when he's told that his daughter's eloped. He didn't even know it, about line 100. The words are welcome, I have charged thee not to hunt by my house, because Rodrigo is apparently wanting to pursue Desdemona. My daughter's not for thee, and now in madness, being full of supper and distempered drugs, upon malicious knavery, that has come to start my client. What's the most important thing for him? Security, quiet, peace. This is our bourgeois, uh, what's the, the, the world of the, the garden, the suburbia? Rabanchi, but that must needs be sure my spirit and my place have been empowered to make this bitterly. I'm going to, you pursue this, you're going to regret it. Patience, good sir. Look at Rabanchi's response. What tellest thou me of robbing? This is Venice. My house is not a grange. What does that tell us about Venice? This is a place of law and order. Those things don't happen here. This is a place of law and order and reason. What does that say about reason? How, how capable is reason of, of penetrating evil? Dealing with it. This is, play of, this is our secular world, our modern utopia. These things are going on here. 
And notice what he says later when, when it becomes clear to him that his daughters look. Strike on the tender, hope give me taper, call up my people. This accident is not unlike my dream. Belief of it oppresses me already. Light, I say light. Okay, just a thought a minute. So, we're in a capitalistic regime. The, the worth of things is determined by money, number one. The authority of the father is practically gone. The family's broken down again. Um, the defining terms of the regime are peace and security, reason and law. What's the irony? It, it makes it clear that there's something going on that reason can't get to, even though it likes to think it can, that it can control everything. And one of the great ironies is he says, it was not unlike my dream. He had intimations that there was something going on. I mean, like we do sometimes in our family, that you know, we get a sense that something might not be right. If we're living in a purely rationalistic world where we think we've got everything under control, and those intuitions come to us in the night, how much do we pay attention to them? Rubansi's attitude is to dismiss them. If this did not happen, we would have blown it off. So we're aware that's, that there's something going on in the unconscious that's below the level of reason that's important that this regime seems to not give place to it because it's a place of law and order. Now the serious question that I want to ask tonight as we move forward is law and order is a good thing. What we're going to see is that out of this regime, given the law and order, is going to come one of the worst villains you will ever encounter in your life. Why in this regime? What is it about this regime that makes that kind of opening to evil? Okay? We'll stop here. Any questions? Or? So, oh. Here, is this the food list? Just quickly, but on your way out, can you just, anybody wants to sign up? Any questions before we stop? Before we? Yes. It's a wonderful play. So it's, it's, you've got a good read ahead of you. It's, it's, I hope you enjoy this. Othello, before you all get up, Othello, if you read all of Shakespeare, Othello speaks the most eloquent lines of love of almost any other Shakespearean character. His declarations of love exceed almost every other lover in his works. And yet this is going to be a tragic play about love. Not for thin-skinned people. No questions? Okay, you guys have a good week. Have a good week. I hope you enjoy your reading. You too. Thank you. Do we want to give you for merchants? Can I just uh, give you cash? Sure. Oh, yeah. Great. Um, do you know your books? Do they look like this? Yes. Or was it white? Okay. Exactly. This is the prices are on the back. Great. Um, so, six dollars. There you go. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Because that was a great version. I, I love that. Yes. Because it had the and definitions. If you look for them, great. 